You are now listening to Grinding True Crimes with your host, Maddie Matt, Todd Fox, and Gabby Gab. Hey, 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 this is Todd Fox. I am doing the Golden State Killer Part 5 East Area Rapist redo of the episode because the episode we did before, we had some audio problems in the lining up of the episode onto the show. We got a few complaints, so I figure, unfortunately, because of the pandemic, um, that's why the sound was so bad, too, is Maddie and Gabby weren't in the studio, and we had some issues with the uh, studio equipment as well. So it was sort of like a combination of things. So with all that said, <clears throat> where you can get a hold of us is at Facebook, Grinding True Crimes. Also, you can find us on Spotify, iHeart, and all that other stuff. I won't have them, unfortunately, chiming in on this episode. But I'm going to do this one solo so we can get some gr- good sound. And I apologize to those who complained about the sound because i re-listening to it. And I heard it and it was kind of bad. So... With all that being said, <clears throat> we're going to replace that episode with this one. So here's part five of Golden State Killer, East Area Rapist. So I will describe what happens in this stuff, and we won't have people chiming in, obviously, but you can make your own assumptions or whatever. Tell me where I'm right or wrong. Please leave some comments. That would be great. You can also email us. I'll leave that there as well. So let's get started. Um, so as we start off uh, from la- uh, as we start off part five, we conclude the last part of the East Area Rapist series. We've seen how the rapist has gotten more and more out of control, and he's graduated to attacking couples and striking a new kind of fear into people. I want to circle back, though, however, to something that I left out from the previous episode. Um, Now, you know I've mentioned Detective Richard Shelby and Carolyn Daly, who have been instrumental in helping out those victims and also chasing down the Golden State Killer at the time, which was the um, East Area Rapist. Well, a few months earlier, when they had a town hall meeting about the rapist, a man stood up, an Italian man, and berated the police and the detectives and chastised any man who would let his wife get raped or leave her in a vulnerable state. And he got up there and he was very vocal and just ripping everybody, like I said, and he was just an an angry individual at the time. And um, he would, um, I failed to mention on the last episode that... He at the last attack where, you know, he threatened the police or threatened the man and said, hey, you know, two people will die. And, you know, if you don't let this out into the media, let people know, you know, he kind of was very vocal with a man and very um, vicious in the attack as well. Well, that was the same Italian man who got up months prior and made a vocal statement about the police not doing their job and that he would never allow that to happen to his wife. And unfortunately, his wife, um, you know, Joseph James D'Angelo figured out either he followed him home. He was at that meeting. It was obvious he was at that meeting because it wasn't televised. And he followed the, the man home and made a mental note. Hey, I'll be back at this house one day. So with all that being said, you know, he's the one that was so vocal. He made a mental note. He came back and he did what he had to do months later, which was pretty terrible. So meaning the, uh, so just nine months later after that whole thing, 
he's over there hearing his wife squirming and the attack happened like nothing and uh, unfortunately he had to endure that and uh, his big mouth wrote checks that he couldn't cash and I guess and it's not fair to the guy now thinking about it because you know he didn't know the, the rapist was there but he was just caught up in the emotion because you think about it the police were hiding a lot of things from the community these attacks happened at such a high rate and they didn't warn the community and, and until it was like already in full process and they had lost control of the situation so <clears throat> with that being said there was attack 11 days later after the previous one that we had talked about in the other episode and this was in the city of sacramento 1 a.m the husband and wife were beginning to have sex actually and but uh, they heard some, the sliding glass door open which is uh, just an mo of the golden state killer and east area rapist at the time and um, they characterized uh, the you know, same same way the attacks usually went with a flashlight and coming out and the pre-cut rope, the diamond knots, placing dishes on the victims as they laid on their stomachs, plus rummaging through the house and eating and destroying things in the process, you know, coming back to the woman, grabbing her, maybe salting her a little bit and then going into the food, you know, getting, getting something out of the refrigerator, things of that nature. So this guy was doing the same things, you know, so... After he raped the woman twice, you know, he stopped and went into the corner and started yelling, Bonnie, you know, squirming and crying in the corner, Bonnie. And like I said, we've talked about Bonnie since the first episode, and this is all coming together. This is all stuff that we're going to see later that comes out in the case. But uh, in between sexually assaulting the woman and eating, you know, he just goes into the corner and cries and says, Bonnie, and then he leaves. Um, but... By this time, Detective Larry Crompton, who we've mentioned a couple times as well, was beginning to tell anyone that would listen because at this time, nobody's linking any of this stuff. They're not linking the Visalia thing, which it won't for years, the cat burglar stuff, none of this stuff, and also to the, the killings or, or any kills. They're not, they're not telling people that, you know, this is a... Larry's trying to tell people that something's going to happen soon. You know, he's going to kill somebody. He's looking for the urge and the, and the time to kill. And he's been threatening people, cutting them more, like leaving little marks on them. So it's going to happen at some point. <clears throat> and if he only knew he had already killed before, maybe Crompton would have been a little more forceful. But in hindsight, you know, in a way, Crompton was, you know, Detective Crompton was uh, right. So Tuesday, September 6, 1977, in the city of Stockton, which is just outside of Sacramento, 1.30 a.m., again, a sliding glass door was pried open as a familiar routine happened. He then took the wife of another room into another room where he raped her and then ate a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. And then he came back to do to do her again and sodomized her and then used a dildo on her anally. And during the attack, the couple's six-year-old daughter came in the room and the rapist said, Do you want to watch? Which is terrible. The kid just went to the restroom and went back to her room because apparently the kid was just so out of it you know it's the middle of the night she just wanted to use the restroom come back she probably thought it was a dream didn't think nothing of it um a few minutes later the rapist left police did find an, um the same characteristics in the break-ins and the prior rapes so they just chalked this one up another one to the east area rapist <clears throat> the couple said the smell was really bad coming from his body however and the couple's dog who was usually very vocal at this you know at, at any kind of sound or noise or whatever would bark a lot didn't make a sound the entire time so going back to this one right now the six-year-old was in a was in a state where 
you know, sleep or whatever. The police actually put her under hypnosis as they will have done plenty of times because they figure that this little six-year-old had a good look but maybe mentally can't draw it back. So maybe through hypnosis, however that works, that they're able to get the daughter to say or come up with more of a description so that can help them with a drawing. And it gave them another drawing, but again, that drawing didn't go nowhere. So fast forward to October 1st, 1977 in Sacramento. Again, the couple was a boyfriend and a girlfriend. And the girlfriend was only 17. The boyfriend was 21 when it happened. Um, except in this situation, the boyfriend had a revolver. Um, during the attack, he broke free and tried to grab the gun from under the mattress. But little did he know <clears throat> that the uh, rapist was laughing for a reason. He actually stopped and laughed and let him grab his gun. Um, the reason why is when the boyfriend grabbed the gun, cocked it and pointed it at the rapist and fired in his mind, should have shot, um, it was not loaded. The gun that was usually loaded under the mattress and, and you know, people were purchasing guns for this very reason. However, the East Area Rapist was always one step ahead as we've all said through this entire series. He had broken into the house earlier, unloaded the weapon, and left it there in the same spot. So more mind games by the rapist. Think of it. You think you have a gun loaded. You think you that's your out. That's your, you know, your your magic weapon, magic wand, whatever you want to call it. And you know, ace up your sleeve. You're gonna take control of the situation that's got out of control. You know, you're you're gonna save your wife. You're gonna be the hero. And you pull the gun, and then nothing. So that must have been a demoralizing. Uh, just way to start the night and unfortunately instead of being the hero breaking things up uh the attack went almost textbook the whole plates on the back the tying up of their not i mean dude dude's wrists were tied so hard he had no feeling in his arm or in his hands and his his uh his feet and uh you know his his wife or his girlfriend gets raped and they again um witness or they they smell a very strong odor coming from the assailant and the intruder uh, October 21st in Sacramento, the first words the married couple heard was, uh, I have a 357 Magnum and I'll blow your brains out. The woman realized it was the East Area Rapist. He raped her twice and after he went into the kitchen, he began to cry. As he, <clears throat> and again, he was mumbling Bonnie. M Bonnie just kept coming up. He actually, and, but this is the weird thing in this, in this, this particular attack. He's never really shown any kind of, you know, because what rapist is going to show any kind of empathy or any kind of like whatever. But he put her head on a comfortable pillow, turned it to the side, took off her uh, blindfold. And he rested his head on the pillow looking right into her eyes, but with a mask on, of course, because he never really showed his face. Um, he was described by the, um, you know, as, as the attacker by the female as being... Once he was mumbling about Bonnie and everything, actually gentle in the way that he touched her. And um, that was very unusual. Um, he didn't hurt her in any way or do weird things at this time. So that was definitely one where, you know, you just don't understand his frame of mind at this point. So the next attack takes place on October 29th, 1977, 2 a.m. The husband wakes up to a tapping on his foot now. Get up else I'll blow your brains out. The husband, as getting up, reached over to his gun on the nightstand, but it was now under the bed, unloaded. So he looked for it, couldn't find it. 
After both were tied up and with plates, after rummaging the same stuff, he blindfolded her and placed his penis into her hands and said, you better do it right else I'll cut your ear off. He then raped her three times and sodomized her. Then he went into the kitchen and began sobbing, saying mommy. But it could have been Bonnie, but that's what they heard was mommy. And he said, I don't want to do this anymore. So saying it to himself. So imagine this guy's just mentally, if you're in that situation being raped or the man being tied up, you're hearing a guy consistently just talking to himself and consistently just saying stuff that's just like weirding you out. That's going to put you in a bad way. So with all that being said, um, he said, I don't want to do this no more. Then he left, you know, and after raping her three times and being in the house about an hour, a bike was found with a foul odor by a bloodhound later in the morning. November 10th, 1977 in Sacramento. These are coming in succession pretty fast here. Another textbook attack. Differences in with this woman. He told her he'll cut her, her fingers off if you don't comply. The couple had a 13-year-old daughter, and the daughter was tied up by the rapist. Another difference is in this uh, attack was the 13-year-old was obsessed was obsessed with the case and the media coverage and she knew from the details on how the rapist worked so she kept all the clippings and she was really into this thing she was trying to see you know like you know if something like this happened what would what would be the result and unfortunately this this guy came to their house and the girl knew that if she didn't get the plates on her back that she would be raped her mom was already a little older they had talked about it saying that you know they felt that she was too young to get raped by the by the uh, suspect and that uh, the mom felt that she was too old to be attacked because again a lot of these women that were getting attacked that had kids were in their 20s to 30s range he never went higher than that you know than the, the young 30s and so uh, I think 36 was the oldest but but yeah he, he kept it very young and then if he attacked younger girls it was no we, we covered one that was 15 so he hadn't really gone younger than that so they figured okay well the 13 year old's gonna be safe she's too young um but after th um but the girl knew that uh like i said if she got the if the mom had the plates she was in trouble that's exactly what happened he went to go put the plates on the mom and after threatening the mom he tried to go into the room and rape the daughter now the daughter to her credit now, we've all talked about this, you know, Maddie and Gabby have been on the show, <clears throat> that he got off on fear. He got off on torment. He got off on just, you know, that it wasn't, a lot of the rape victims would explain later, it didn't feel like it was anything to do with his sex. Like, when he got his jollies and he got off, it was because of the terror and, and whatever that he was inflicting. Because adequately, he didn't match up with these women if he has a small penis at about four inches or so, fully erect, quarter size diameter and girth. You're not going to be doing much to help, you know, satisfy a woman or scare her, rip her, hurt her internally as most rapists would do. You know what I'm saying? So when you have someone small in stature, they need to get off in another way. And, you know, this guy is just using every bit of torture that he can. So... This is where he didn't get off. This is where he had a hard time getting it up, as explained by the 13-year-old. Is the fact that she was being so defiant to him and telling him that you can't rape me, you're not going to hurt me, curse words back and forth at him. And no matter if he grabbed her hair or even smacked her, which he did, the rapist got mad and flipped her over. And as she kept squirming, he kept trying to put it in. He couldn't get an erection. 
it wasn't going the way that he wanted. Now, fortunately, fortunately for this young 13-year-old who was a who was very very uh, much a hero in my mind, um, she didn't get hurt. You know, she's very lucky that this guy didn't just take it out on her, beat her to death, or do anything, you know, mutilating anything like that. None of that happened, fortunately, and she survived, obviously. But the fact was, he got so frustrated, he just and she he knew she wasn't scared. He gave up. He just gave up, and he left. So, um. The police came in, investigated, figured out it was the same kind of M.O., same kind of thing. And, you know, they realized that this girl was, you know, a hero. She fought off the attacker. She didn't let herself get de-virginized. Not that maybe he could, you know, he didn't de-virginize a couple of the other girls either, as we talked about in the last episode because of his size. So that was playing into her, into her, um psyche too so she used that and, and for, fortunately you know it all worked out you know she had a garden guardian angel over her at, at some point i believe which helped her out um <clears throat> the monster couldn't inflict his pain on on her or her mom which is good but it's still traumatic and it's something that these women all and i'll talk about in in uh, the next episode of the episode after when we close this out is that the fact that these all these women all will get together someday and i'll tell you what happens um December 2nd, 1977, Sacramento, a woman woke up to a flashlight in her face, again, of the woman, and uh, he did everything that he normally does. She began to cry a lot, though, and the rapist told her to shut up, and she was scared for her daughter in the other room. All of a sudden, outside, there there was a, a group of kids making noise. Now, this was a little bit earlier in the evening, so it wasn't like 2 or 3 in the morning. It was probably like 12 o'clock, a group of teenagers drinking beer outside or doing making some sort of noise in the neighborhood, right? And uh, it was throwing his chi off. Because, I mean, we've all been there. If we're in a relationship with somebody and we're intimate or something like that, and if, if someone's making noise or, you know, lawnmowers going off, it could distract us. You know, we're trying to be in, <laughs> we're trying to be in a, uh, a focused role. And I'm not making that as far as the same thing as intimacy with your wife or your significant other or whoever, your partner. But I'm just saying, like, as far as, like, you know, you get into a mode or a groove and you're trying to do something and this guy's trying to inflict fear and also get off and then kids are making noise outside so he became to get he he got really distracted he kept getting up to the window kept looking out kept trying to see where the kids were how you know if they were coming close to the house if they were going to be a bigger problem and you know he went back to her three or four times and just couldn't get anything going um now it's at this time though on the fourth time that he got out to look out the window she kind of snuck over knocked the phone off the the wall and and just dialed the sheriff or she had it on speed dial or something and she was able to get a hold of the police and the police became to come on their uh come on their way to the scene and um i guess he was so frustrated he he left her out and didn't see where she was at and enough time went by that when she he came back to her the phone was right next to her her ear on the floor and you know it was too late. He had to go. So he ran. And uh, it would be a few more minutes later before the Highway Patrol helicopters were flying over the areas, doing spotlights, trying to look into the, the areas where they had walkways, where they had uh, canalways, the streets. And then just basically they couldn't find the guy again. Um, so in talking about those helicopters, like we mentioned before, I mean, just think about it. You have those, you know, helicopters in the sky at times and 
you know, they've, they've come over your house, I'm sure at some point, and it's an uneasy feeling, whether they have the spotlight that's close to your house, you know, there's something in the neighborhood and you're like, crap, you know, we got to lock the windows, got to lock the doors. You don't want someone coming in here and, and, and starting something. And then you have the fact that, oh man, you know, this could be something dangerous and you kind of prepare yourself and it's an uneasy feeling, especially at nighttime, you know, got that spotlight going and and I've been in a neighborhood before where, you know, the sheriff gets on the, the mic and says, stay in your, and stay inside, blah, blah, or come out because they're talking to the suspect and it's, it's an eerie feeling. So imagine this on a nightly basis. You have helicopters circling your neighborhood because they know or they they have a feeling because of recent robberies or something that the the rapist or this guy that they just can't they can't uh, locate they can't identify is doing all these terrible things to people and you're just hunkered down in your own house you feel like a prisoner i mean i would and we've actually gone up there to do some interviews and we've seen the areas and we'll get into that and we're going to post some stuff about that and um, I think you guys will enjoy the footwork that we did up there. Got some interviews and showed the neighborhoods and whatnot. So that's another thing to look forward to. But as far as this, just putting yourself in this situation with these helicopters, this isn't just one helicopter over one area. It's like about three in a neighborhood or when they would get tips. And then you have police circling around. I mean, maybe you feel good about that, but then maybe you don't, you know. So I don't know. Me, it just would freak me out. Um so with that being said, a tip came in uh, from a 7-Eleven clerk, a night clerk, uh, to the uh, <clears throat> Rancho Cardova police. And he said that there was a man that came in that kind of fit the description with the blonde hair, not with a mask, obviously, but with like a, a Vietnam veterans jacket on and, and some like military pants and, and, you know, possibly shoe size the same, nine and a half, um, that would come into the store, you know, late at night, two, three in the morning, looking at the pornographic section. Now, I've been to 7-Elevens recently, obviously, and like everyone has, I haven't seen a pornographic section at a 7-Eleven. Maybe at like your, you know, your little local liquor store or whatever like that, but not at a 7-Eleven. But I guess back in then they had, they had that pornographic section. Um, so the tip eventually got from one department to another. Got to Shelby. Shelby said, it, you know, it seems very legit. So the next night, he ordered three officers to go in plain clothes to the 7-Eleven store and, you know, go outside, have one officer in an unmarked car waiting outside, maybe to the side of the street of the 7-Eleven. And then two plainly clothed officers were supposed to sit in the back room. And if the man came in, they arrest him, you know, and then try to figure things out, investigate or take him downtown, at least. You know what I'm saying? So. What do you guys think happened? Um, and here's where Matt and Gabby would chime in, but this is not where, you know, we don't have them on the show today. But <clears throat> what happened was one officer stayed in the unmarked car as told, while the other two officers that were supposed to wait in the back of the store or in the back room was walking around the store in a just a plain white t-shirt covering his uniform underneath. Now, if you ever worn a white shirt over a dark colored clothes which the 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 um, uniform police officer was wearing navy blue type you know regular police officer type shirt with a badge you wear a shirt over the top even if you know it's not wet you can see through most t-shirts to what they're wearing especially a dark color underneath so it kind of defeats the purpose and if you haven't changed your pants into jeans like they were supposed to 
that's another giveaway. He's wearing the police-issued khakis or whatever kind of pants they had, the blue, navy blue, you know, stuff with the boots and whatnot. So the other cop didn't even take it seriously enough to change either. So he didn't, at least one put a white t-shirt on, the other one didn't even change his, his outfit whatsoever. So, and despite the fact that they were told, hey, stay in the back room, stay out of sight. Um, if you are going to be, you know, just stay out of sight. Don't go by the clerk. These guys didn't listen. They did what they wanted to. So at this time, the East Area Rapist was smart. He kind of, uh, because <laughs> he saw these men talking to the store clerk, okay, when they're supposed to be in the back, they're talking to the clerk. So, and you've, if you've ever gone by 7-Eleven, there's, it's not like there's shades up there. It's not like it's tinted windows. You could see to the back of every 7-Eleven store, no matter what. You could see exactly what's in the store from like, if you have good enough eyesight, 50 yards, you know, or 25 yards in the parking lot through the store. You could see everyone who's inside of it. So that's why when when, when some of these 7-Elevens are robbed or some something's going on in there in a fight, you can see from a car passing by because the windows are clear. There's no shades. There's really hardly any advertisements. And if there are, they're door level on the, on the bottom. They're not in the top to where you could see everybody, you know, so... You get a good, my point is you can get a good view of who's in the store by being outside just a few feet off or whatever. For whatever reason, he wasn't spotted by the plainly closed officer in the unmarked police car. So a call came in at 1.45 to a 7-Eleven clerk, the same one who had ratted on him and said that this guy was coming in around 2 o'clock, 3 in the morning, looking at pornographic stuff on a nightly basis. So the reason why the cops are there in the first place. He, the clerk answered the phone. And right away, in a you know, in a, in a real feminine type voice, the guy on the phone, the caller said, "I want to talk to the police officers." Now the clerk said, "No, like there's no police officers here." He then followed up the caller saying, "B.S. Let me talk to them." So the clerk called the one with a T-shirt over, and you know the guy came up to him and he laughed in the cop's face. That picked up the phone and then he hung up. So, these police officers were chastised, obviously, after the fact. And uh, I don't know what kind of disciplinary situation came of it. But this was another one of Shelby's close calls or an opportunity lost. And I think this was an opportunity lost because had they been stealthy at all, uh, maybe the East Area Rapist walks in there like he normally does. And we find out that this is Joseph James D'Angelo at the time. And... Many lives are saved because of this. Instead, we will uh, move on and the series will continue to get worse. So, December 31st of that year, very last day of friggin', obviously, of 1977, a poem that made little or no sense by the East Area Rapist was, was sent to the Sacramento Bee newspaper, plus a request to make a movie on his life. He said that I'm very interesting man. He, he made this poem up about killing and about whatever, right? It's just a lot of rambling stuff. So that came in. I had to mention that because that was big at the time because it was all over newspapers because he was taunting the police and he was taunting everyone in the neighborhood. It was also about you'll never catch me unless you meet my demands type of deal. So nearly a month later, there was an attack uh, uh, January 28th, 10 15. 1978 in Carmichael, two teenage sisters were fast asleep when the East Area Rapist came and tied them both up. He had come through their window and then he was so stealthy about it, he couldn't, you know, they didn't hear it. He threatened both of them 
Um, unfortunately, he raped the 15-year-old as the 14-year-old was tied up next to her. He rummaged through the house. Uh, when he kept asking for money, he was frustrated, kept coming back to the, uh, the room, and they didn't have any money, kept asking. He said, you know where it's at, you know where it's at. The girls kept denying it. Then finally, as he was starting to place his penis in the 14-year-old, he stopped for whatever reason and said, mumbled out loud, I can't do this anymore. So <clears throat> then after that, what was different about this attack, though, when he originally came uh, for, you know, he came through the window, he left the house and then kicked the door in. And so it didn't make any sense because he had come through the window stealthy. And for whatever reason, the door was damaged pretty bad when the cops arrived. Um, so it kind of threw them off there. Um, the rapist, and in, in, it was kind of weird because the cops deduced the way he was in there. He was only in the house about maybe 20 minutes, 25. And he was at a very fast pace, unlike the other attacks. And so they deduced that maybe he didn't know when the parents were coming home. You know, they were out on the night out of town, left the girls by themselves. Unfortunately, people did that then, and I'm sure they do it now, but it's a lot more. it was a lot more dangerous back then um, with just no cameras and stuff like that and whatnot. But moving on, I tend to ramble when I don't have help on this show, by the way. So, um, and unfortunately, they couldn't be here. Sorry. So you rambled again. So thankfully, they weren't there too long, like I said, and also the hymen on the 15-year-old was still intact due to, well, the small penis. So fortunately, you know, obviously she went through a lot. It's traumatizing and, you know, these girls will live with this for the rest of their lives. However, again, at least she was not diversionized by this psychopath. Um, February 2nd, 1978, a young couple. And this and this is the part that we visited this area too. Um, this was pretty crazy. Um, this is something that will make more sense as, as I finish up the episode. Um, but February 2nd, 1978, a young couple, Brian and Katie Majori, were walking their dog in the neighborhood and uh, did not know at the time they were being stalked by the rapist. Now, the rapist was behind this house, um, these two homes, and he was trying to get into a sliding glass door. Now, he had been scoping out, though, Katie and Brian Majori with prank phone calls, all the stuff that he would do um Stealing, you know, they, they they had reported, you know, a few things missing. But the thing is, this particular house is three blocks from their house. They're walking their dog around 10 p.m. They're walking towards their house. He's already scoped their house on another night. So he has them in line as another potential victim. However, he's attacking another house at the same time, or at least scoping out another house because those people weren't home at the house that he's going into. So possibly the police felt he was going in there to scope the layout of the house, see if there's any guns. So he's lining these up left and right. Can you believe that? I mean, this is, this is trippy. But the, the bad, I think the bad timing and the things that just went wrong here just really suck because these two people, as I'll get into right now, it, it shouldn't have went down this way. So as he's in the backyard, trying to get in through the sliding glass door, prying, doing the same stuff he would always do, the dog got off, not a, a got off a leash, but you know how when you're you're holding a dog, you're walking. If you've ever walked a dog before, and the dog is walking at your pace, you kind of like 
if the dog's not doing anything stupid, like going after another dog, chasing a person, lunging, you relax your grip. You kind of like give the benefit of the doubt to that dog. As they're walking down the block, three blocks from their house, the backyard where the, the East Area Rapist was, the dog just lunged. And he took off. So he jumps out of who knows if it was Katie's or Brian, because we don't know that those facts. But the dog gets away from one of them. We do know that they chased what it, what it was, was the house he was in. They had a windstorm the night before. The little gate that keeps the property separated from each other had been blown over. The dog jumps it. Now, this is like a, a French poodle, so it's not that big. But it's, uh, I'm assuming the fence was on, on its side, on the ground, flat level. The dog jumps over the top of it because it's only like a, probably a foot high and goes into the backyard. Now, as it goes into the backyard, Brian and Katie are not too far behind. As they finally get into the backyard, they see their dog in the middle of the pool struggling to stay afloat. As they look over, you know, Katie, they're, they're trying to process everything. Who's looking at them straight in the eye and with no mask on? And that would be the East Area Rapist. As Brian got into the yard and, you know, processes it, he notices the East Area Rapist. Two shots went off. And the East Area Rapist shoots him twice in the chest. Katie screams. Now, at this very time that she screams, a 10-year-old from across the street wakes up and runs to the window as he's running to the window she's running out of the yard as brian drops to the ground which is a former naval officer or a, you know a naval officer at the time he the east area rapist with no malice takes a pop shot and does a kill shot in the dude's head then as katie is running out the driveway the east area rapist takes one shot and nails her in the back of the head she drops to the floor he still does not have a mask on at this time because remember he's prying and not using a mask for whatever reason. And the 10-year-old gets a great view of him. And it's actually, as he takes off down the street and they, you know, people call the police or the sheriff, um, the 10-year-old is witnesses the entire murder and gets a great look at him and is probably one of the better descriptions of D'Angelo and you could see when they put the face over the face the, the the drawing over his even at his old age now you could see it when you use an older picture of him but when you take the even as an older picture you can see it that it matches up like the kid given a phenomenal description and a lot of it was due to also they put the 10 year old under hypnosis <clears throat> but that 10 year old suffered through that because that he witnessed the murder of Porter Katie Majori um, so after this, um, you know, Shelby and the police get there. They find um, Katie in the driveway. They find the dog still struggling to swim in the middle of the pool, um, shivering. And they get the dog out, obviously. They find poor Brian on the floor. And here's the thing, too. This is what bothers me. Uh, Shelby and his crew did not chalk this one up to the East Area Rapist, despite finding the diamond-shaped... Um, knots and this this case would not be linked till DNA evidence on those laces and I think I think it was a DNA evidence and it might have been uh, I didn't get too much information out of this one it might have been ballistics as well but somehow some way they were able to link this case in 2001 to the murders 
and uh, when they got everything linked together. Um, what was, like I said, diamond-shaped knots were found uh, in shoelace style, and um, with shoelaces, I'm sorry. And Shelby had seen this before, but like I said, he didn't, he didn't think the East Area Rapist would dip into a murder, and he actually thought this was kind of like a copycat. So, um, you know, a month later, the series continues. March 18th, 1978 in Stockton, a couple woke up to the same threats and terrorizing with dishes as both were tied up and, they, and he began to assault the woman. Now, at this time, instead of placing his penis in her hands, he placed he sat on her back, which is kind of weird, on her lower back. Remember, her hands are, are hogtied. You know, he hogtied a lot of these women with their hands behind their back, tied up with those diamond shaped, really tight to where you kind of lose circulation. And then your feet, are, you know, your ankles are tied up until he would loosen those up to rape them and then keep them, keep them tied with their hands backwards. And he did this a lot, though. He would, put, he would put his penis in their tied up hands and said, play with it. And then when he would get erect, then he would do his thing. Um, but he sat on her lower back, kind of where you put your tramp stamp, and he put his package, his balls, in her hand, and the whole thing said, just play with it, which was kind of weird. It was, it was kind of off the script and a little weird, and she even felt, like, really weird about it. Um, he, and she was on her stomach. Then he did not rape her vaginally. He raped her four times, meaning coming and going to the part of, you know, releasing himself but stopping going to get something to eat, coming back, going through the whole process again, and then stopping, going to get something to eat. He would not finish until he was ready to finish, which was the fourth time. And uh, he did it all anally, did nothing vaginally. Uh, the woman told police that um, he couldn't have been bigger than three to four inches, and it was same description, small penis. And he had also been observed uh, before sobbing and talking to his mom. And again, it could have been Bonnie. But they picked up on mommy because it's, it's very close. You know, if he says it a certain way, if he says it in a certain voice or tone, it's easy to see how they were uh, mixed up. But I feel he was saying Bonnie every time. He wasn't anywhere close to his parents to where I think he'd be worrying about what his mom, um, <clears throat> his what his mom thought. If you've heard the first episode at all, um, the next attack was Friday, April fourteenth, uh, nineteen seventy-eight in Sacramento. A fifteen-year-old was babysitting a three-year-old from another couple. He broke up, he broke in, tied her up, terrified she pleaded not to her, uh, for her for her not to be hurt by him. He blindfolded her, put a gun to her head, then he raped her. A phone rang as he was raping her, and he, you know, went back to the phone, hung it up. He began to rape her again, but then the phone started to ring again. The rapist was getting pissed, so as he was trying to, like, you know, get into it every time the phone kept ringing so what happened was it was the couple of the three-year-old and they knew that if she didn't answer the phone there was a problem so they began to get on their way from where they were out uh, on their dinner date or whatever but before they did they called the cops and said something happened to our house so they're racing back from where they came they had a bad feeling or the mom did and they called the police they did everything right um eventually like i said after four calls you know, the rapist at this time was just losing his mojo and just couldn't keep it up. So he just started to get really frustrated. And fortunately, he didn't take anything else out on um, the poor girl and he left. And this, so the police came, brought bloodhounds. They had the helicopters there. Uh, they followed the scent and the dogs lost the scent about, you know, about 
100 to 200 yards in the canal. So he got on some sort of bike or some sort of something. And he left the area. They became, they got disoriented again. And they were searching the streets over, you know, air, you know, with the helicopters and then with the cars. But nothing happened. Uh, fortunately for the girl, the rape kit was taken. There was no full penetration. Uh, they were able to, res, uh, to save some DNA. Uh, and uh, her hymen was still intact. So it was another girl that her hymen was intact that he didn't penetrate and too much did not hurt her. So thankfully she had that to hold on to. Um, that's very personal, obviously. So, you know, there's some good out of it. Even if you can say she was raped and penetrated, it still sucks. Um, but, you know, at least she has that to hold on to. Um, now, at this time, Joseph James D'Angelo is transferred and is working for another city uh, um, police department, which is the city of Auburn. Auburn's a little bit north of Rancho Cardova. It's about 15 minutes away from there. Um, it's a city, magically, he doesn't strike. <laughs> he doesn't strike or or, uh, or make any kind of offenses. Not even... At this time, you have so much going on with the robberies, with the prank calls, with the rapes, with the uh, attempted kidnappings, all done by Joseph James D'Angelo. The, the stealing of you know property and just the harassing of people, yet nothing is happening in Auburn, which is just 15 minutes north. Um, that's not a coincidence, obviously. <clears throat> uh, so Friday, March 18th, 1978, is a time of a textbook rape of a couple in their home same mo same everything everything went off with a hitch repeated rapes the cu the couple had received numerous prank calls prior nothing was reported and that's the that's the failure of not only the people in the neighborhood but the actual people who are getting attacked only one time in this series have we heard of anyone reporting or telling the cops and they were that they were potential hits that you know something was going on it was it was very weird to be getting these phone calls and things like that and hardly any of these people ever reported these things. Um, so that same night on the news, there was a story about a firearms uh, firearms in the area being in short demand. Uh, a lot of people were ordering guns, uh, purchasing dogs, uh, any kind of security systems at that time. You know, whatever it was, they were trying to do it because changing locks. I mean, the police literally came on the news and said, it's good to change your locks. It's good to add locks. You know, instead of having just the deadbolt and the, the, the front door lock, add another one. You know, uh, whatever you got to do, put a safety latch over. You know, you know, put extra locks on your windows. Do something. Shore them up. And it's kind of an uneasy feeling. If you're a community at that time, you're like, damn, you know, they're telling us to do this. It's like we're doing the job because they can't catch the guy. You're, so there's so much pressure on the police departments that are surrounding that area. So much pressure on the task force that is working the cases. Everyone's in fear. And, and we'll see this as, as, as this continues. Um, so, again, now at this point, it seems like, you know, he heads south because of all the attention in the Sacramento, Rancho Cardova area, Citrus Heights, um, you know, the helicopters going, you know, at, in the evening time, the police out during the day, it's just becoming too much heat. So a month later, despite all this, April 14th, 1978, he goes south and he goes south quite a ways to Modesto, Modesto, California. Um, a couple were fast asleep when a man woke them up, uh, tapping on their doorway and shining a flashlight into their eyes. And again, 
the rapist, after trying or tying them, said, I need money for my trip. He did the same thing to rape the woman and place dishes on the man again. But this time he taunted the husband saying what he would do to his wife and making sure that he knew in detail what he was going to do. Um, and, and letting him know very vigorously that he couldn't do anything about it. He also tied her hands so tight that her wrist bled. <clears throat> Carolyn Daly arrived to find the same MOs from most cases and the same clues. She came down there on a whim because all the MOs fit the same and she was called in to take care of the woman as she was a saint to most of these women that were raped. She was there for the rape kit. She was there again to uh, provide support and most importantly, a listening ear. As a lot of these women didn't have a reach out a center to go to a victim's advocacy type thing to deal with. They had to just deal with this stuff on their own. They were told to get over it, basically. But Carolyn Daly was a saint to a lot of these women. <clears throat> However, again, no fingerprints. Is, in all cases, he wore gloves. And he was very careful. This would continue to frustrate police. The next attack would be June 7, 1978, in the city of Davis. At a college of the UC Davis, a girl was sleeping and was awoke to a hand over her mouth and the man said, don't move or you will never see your friends again. The girl struggled and tried to wiggle out of her bindings only to get repeatedly punched in the face. Then she calmed down. Well, after being punched in the face, that kind of sucks. Kind of got to roll with it because you'd rather be punched than stabbed. To where he began to sodomize her and rape her twice before leaving. This was an unusual attack because this happened in an apartment close to the campus. He never struck in an apartment before, would strike again later, but not to this point. And in June 23, 1978, a Modesto, uh, man in Modesto woke up to his dog barking, then the intruder saying, shut the F up or, or I will shut it up for you. He then proceeded to do all his sad things to the couple, but was only <clears throat> in the house for 45 minutes with the rapes and un other unusual things. Plus, he stole a 357 Magnum from the residence. Difference in this case was a taxi cab driver told police that he believed he had dropped off the intruder prior to the attack. His description gave the description given was almost the same as the uh, as the few who actually caught a glimpse of the man at the time, and it would also fit the description of the drawing that the 10-year-old made. He was 5'10", slim build, mustache, and had a blondish blonde brownish haircut he was carrying a duffel bag with him and he was headed for the uh the scene of the crime when it was dropped off in a remote area too so it wasn't like he was dropped off in a particular address but you know just dropped off of the bag and i don't know if this is categorized as him being safe or categorized as him as being a little sloppy in you know trusting um himself with a taxi cab driver other than taking his car and maybe getting a bike and rolling to the situation. Either way you cut it, I think it's more sloppy than than the other than being safe because obviously you can be ID'd if you know if things match up, and that's kind of what happened here. But he was lucky. Again, the true identity would never come out for years to come. Um, <clears throat> the next the next night in June is June twenty fourth, nineteen seventy eight, three a.m. in Davis, California. Again, it's another small city where he attacked and laid a couple uh laid a couple on their stomachs difference was in this in this attack that he uh 
again, threaten several times of the details of what he would do to them if they didn't listen and threatened them with extreme violence. Uh, he would shove the gun into their, si- into their side several times uh, and, and just seemingly to the couple reported like he just he wanted to kill but he just drew back for whatever reason the couple had a nine-year-old son uh he threatened the kid and with anger locked him in the bathroom uh, and uh jimmied the door with a chair so that it couldn't open um and he said that if the son keeps making noise he'll come you know he'll go in there and he'll kill him and um you know he then told the woman if you don't make it feel good i'll put a knife uh, this knife through your heart, and then I'll go kill your son. He then raped the woman three times. He was there an hour, uh, and, and the police, you know, police came. Everything the the the, the son was was freed from the the bathroom again, and unfortunately, you know, the kid had to endure that uh, attack. So did the family. July sixth, nineteen seventy eight, in Davis again, three a.m. A woman at a home and her two kids woke up to. The gun and the flashlight routine. He uh, did all the same things, rummaged through the house, had them all tied up. He sobbed through the house, though. And uh, then he would finally rape her. A huge difference in this case, though, was the attack um, was when she was on her stomach, tied and gagged. He actually laid next to her, went face to face with her on the pillow. Then through clenched teeth, he said, I hate you, Bonnie. And to to this day, the woman says... He, in fact, said Bonnie. And then he said, I freaking hate you. But, you know, dropped an F-bomb or two. He groped her breasts and left. So, again, played with her breasts. I don't know if her breasts matched up with Bonnie's or whatever. But he played with her breasts. And he's done this on a couple times, you know. And so, it weird little things like this. I mean... I hate to say, you know, he followed the M.O.s and he did the same things over and over because it is a little monotonous if I tell you in detail everything that has happened because it's almost the same. But it's sad that these people are are just enduring the same B.S. Like, I'm only here for money and I'm only here. I'm not going to hurt you. I, I need gas for my van or I'm going on a trip and I need to get out of here or I just need money for drugs. They hear the same things. They get the plates you know, on them, they get the same diamond shaped knots, they get the threats, and then everything goes haywire when he takes the woman away from the man into another room and rapes him. I mean, just the agony that these people feel. Put yourself in that situation where you're just thinking, oh my God. You know, there's this sheer terror because you don't know. You've heard maybe in a newspaper or on television that he's never killed, but by, but he has. And if you do something wrong, you don't follow protocol, you're going to die. But you do have something in the back of your mind, either through media or whatever, that he's never killed. And if I just comply, we'll be all right. Unfortunately, when these people are tied up, they know what's going to happen next. Um, so three months go by and the police are still no closer whatsoever. There are no new attacks. And the task force actually gets dismantled a little bit. Because that's a lot of people to pay on the payroll, working 24 hours a day on the same case. And if you have a lull in the attacks or anything else like that why do you need a task force if you're no closer you know so there's pressure coming from the higher ups on these policemen and on these detectives so it's it's almost three months later until october 7 1978 with a reduced police force with the helicopters kind of chilling as well while prowling the neighborhood he came up 
um, on a couple and said the usual I want food and money and gas. He threatened the couple over and over and tied them up tight with multiple shoelaces. He did uh, his usual routine again, except the big amount of dishes was put placed on the man. Too much to where he was scared to even breathe. Um, somehow he kept the plates on him. She was raped three times. $4,000 was stolen in, in merchandise and whatever cash and jewelry they had at the house. So that was a little weird because he took a lot of stuff this time. Usually he takes odds and ends, maybe sentimental things to the, the victims. And he, he went out of his way to do a cra- cash grab on this one. Um, fast forward to October 13th, 1978. Again in Concord, a couple were sleeping and awoke up to a gun and threats, the same as usual. As they were tied up, though, the six-year-old daughter ran into the room as the mom was yelling, and uh, she wasn't exactly, you know, gagged. Um, and the rapist uh, grabbed the kid and told her to go in the bathroom. He threatened to kill her if she doesn't shut up. Uh, he put a dresser in front of the door, this time barricading the bathroom door. He told her that this better be the best sex ever. She complied and did what he wanted. Then he left. The police would find the, f- the footprints, the same MOs as the others. The, com- the community was angered at this time because it hadn't really happened down there with kids, but angered even more by the treatment of the family and especially the six-year-old when it hit the news. Um, the next attack was two weeks later in San Ramon, a very small northern California town, October 28, 1978. The intruder was walking... Uh, the uh, was was waking the people up as he yelled at them, asking for money several times. As they were tied up, he went to the woman and said, "Suck it, and if you bite it, I'll blow your effing head off." She begged for a glass of water. Now, what do you think he does right here? I mean, this this kind of sucks. This is like a total dick move. He went and got one, uh, you know, glass of water, only to throw it in her face. He shoved it, so 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 she's thirsty because, okay, first off, she's thirsty because of the smell, the odor of this guy. It's like gagging her. She's scared, you know, when you get cotton mouth. I mean, sometimes, like, I've been in a situation, like, on a roller like, I'm not really a, good, a fan of roller coasters, but when I get stressed out, I'm on a roller coaster, I get dry mouth. So she got dry mouth thinking of, oh, I'm about, about to be raped, I'm scared. You know, um, whatever, right? So she asked for a glass of water, and then she's thinking, okay, he's going to give me a glass of water. No, he just throws the water in her face, which sucks. Um, So after he did that, um, he did the next gentleman thing. Um, He shoved it in her face, had, you know, his penis, had her suck it, and then um, he did the next best thing. Instead of giving her water, he ejaculated all over her face, and then ejaculated some in her mouth and forced her to swallow it. Uh, then he rummaged through the house and came back to rape her again. Uh, same things were found, including the small uh, shoe prints, nine and a half size outside the windows in the flower garden or what have you when he was prying looking into the windows. Plus this time he entered through the garage um, and he had left that was left over overnight. Some people leave their garage doors open. I've done that a few times. Not the smartest thing to do, but sometimes you leave it open or you leave it half open for whatever reason. Um, the phone lines had been cut, so that was another thing. 
September, uh, uh, sorry, Saturday, November fourth, nineteen seventy-eight, in San Jose, California. The victim uh, was surprised, fought the rapist, but she submitted uh, as he came through the door. Uh, not too many details on this particular rape because it was in a different jurisdiction, and plainly, you know, to say or, or simply to say, they didn't really take good notes. So there wasn't too much of it other than the fact that he had a small penis, a foul odor was coming from his body, and he also had the same kind of like uh, characteristics, same gloves, same mask, and did the same things. This was more of a, I think, an opportunity type rape. Um, The next attack happened December 2nd, 1978. It was our closing out 78 in San Jose. As a usual break-in style happened through the sliding glass door and the surprise uh he wound up surprising the couple in their bed the husband tried to attack the rapist as he got up from the bed but the rapist slugged the husband with a club and his gun and said try that again mother effort and you're a dead man he tied the husband super tight and took the woman into the front room as she could not uh couldn't see but just hear um she heard the sound of lubrication by her face and he said, "You, you, uh, he said, you better do this right, or I'm gonna slit your throat." Then he sodomized her. He ransacked her, uh, and, and that's the thing. Um, he lubricated himself up with lotion and then had her suck it. That's disgusting. So uh, then he ransacked the house. Then he came back to her, raped her vaginally. As he was raping her, he had a gun to her head. Okay, I mean, good God. Okay, it's one thing to be kinky in bed grabbing the ponytail, pulling it back, or even some people like to be choked. But you're actually putting a, a loaded firearm. I don't know the, the, the size of the firearm, but whatever. It's a loaded weapon, for God's sake. And you're being raped, you know, vaginally. So obviously you're, already, you're obviously in a bad situation, whether he's raping you with no weapon or not. You're getting raped. You're getting violated. Your rights are being screwed over. I mean, you're literally, this is the worst thing a woman can endure and it's very sad, and but yet he's got a gun to your head. And if you don't comply, if you move in any way that he's not comfortable with, he's going to blow your brains out. I mean, I can't comprehend the, the amount of fear or just the just the hurt and the worrisome terror. Ter- I, I don't even know how to pronounce it. Like just being terrified so badly that this dude's got a gun to your head. You know, he's going to blow your freaking brains out. And, and, and you're giving up something that's so pure to yourself. This is you. This is the biggest violation. And you're sitting there just giving that up. And then also, you're giving up your life if you even do anything remotely heroic in your mind. Or try to save your... Like the, the whole... Like you, you've given up everything. You have to. You know, he's, he's gotten you in the most vulnerable situation anybody's in. It's just t- terrible. So she's got a gun to the back of her head while he's raping her. I mean, I, I, it's hard to fathom everything that goes with it. Um, so after he raped her, he began sobbing in the corner. So picture a grown-ass man with a, with a mask on. He just violated you in the most descriptive ways, in the most just terrifying ways. And he goes to the side of the room and in a, in a, curled up in a ball and starts sobbing and saying, Bonnie or Mommy? Whatever you decide to hear or decipher. At this point, do you feel he's going to come back and just blow you away? You know, he's already 
had sex with you, he's already ejaculated. I mean, is he thinking about killing you? I mean, this is what went through so many women's heads at the time. And their husbands, because obviously, if the woman is killed, he's going to move on to the guy. He's not going to leave no witnesses. I mean, this is insane. So, after this, he left. The police had took her to the hospital. They were able to collect some semen with a rape kit. So that's big because I'll come up in the story later. December 9th um, in Danville, uh, California, a woman woke up with a knife to her chest. And after tying her up, he asked for money. Same kind of deal. He asked her, does she like raising dicks? Which this didn't make any sense. But I don't know if he was using it as just a joke to himself or some sort of like twisted pickup line. But he says, do you? Do you like uh, raising dicks? She was so confused and she just said no. Then he said, how come you like to raise mine? And giving her the assumption that he's been watching her and that she tickles his fancy. He then raped her and took her rings forcefully off her fingers. The dogs followed the scent when the police came to a railroad track to where the scent was lost by police. But they found a poem which was called Mad as a Word. And you can look this up. I'm not going to go through the whole poem. It's kind of long. It's kind of like winded. <clears throat> Makes little or no sense. But it's a poem that made people think and police think that it came from... It was it was a homework that he wrote a poem. And that he was upset with his 6th grade teacher. It goes into all these things where the 6th grade teacher had let him down. He didn't go on field trips. He got in trouble. Things of that nature. Sort of just bl- blaming on him. So it was, it was a little weird. That particular sub sub um, subdivision of homes that was recently built where the last attack had occurred. On the back of the poem, that same subdivision was drawn out in great detail. And, this, and the police and the detectives would think for years that this guy had something to do with construction. So they weren't thinking he was a cop. They thought maybe he had something to do with construction because he detailed the neighborhood to a T, almost aerial view with all the homes mapped out and all the streets. The difference on this one, which made the cops feel uneasy, is it was titled Punishment. And it had certain homes X'd out and certain homes circled. So the police went and did their homework and found out, you know, what was on this street, that particular house, kind of scoped it out because they figured, oh crap, you know, this guy's, he's got certain victims he's after. But nothing came of this either. Even though the cops scoped it out, looked after the paperwork, tried to understand the Matt is the word poem, and then also looking at the subdivision, checking out the homes, and trying to see if, you know, you know, staking out, kind of staying plain clothes officers to try to see if they would make an attack at one of these women that he, he wanted to make the next victim. Nothing ever happened. Why? Because December 18th, 1978, two weeks later, he's in San Ramon. So he's not even in that same city again. The family had been very much up on the news before coming into their house or leaving the house. This family knew about the East Area Rapist and they would look and actually do a visualization before they left the house if anything was out of place. If they noticed any kind of shoe print. Anything. They would. They noticed that and they realized that this dude broke in before he actually attacked the couples. So he got familiar with their houses. So they were like, you know what, <clears throat> again... Let's check this out. Let's make sure we cover our um, our uh, daughter eyes, cover our teeth, or you know, put the teeth. I, I know I killed that analogy. Anyway, <laughs> so 
basically they were looking for anything out of place. One day they came home and I don't know what sparked this, but this is a, a family that knows their ish and they really understood the fact of the severity of the situation and they did not want to become victims and kudos to whoever decided to look under the couch before, you know, or when they came home. You know, they did all the normal checks. I wouldn't look under a couch. You know what I mean? Like I would look maybe if a picture was out of place, something out of the refrigerator, the garage door, windows, doors, whatever, right? Someone got on their knees, looked underneath the couch. And underneath the couch, they found a family picture underneath the couch, also with some rope and some strings. So that was definitely a house that was marked as one that's going to be attacked. And like we said with the Majoris earlier in the show, that he was scoping out another house when he already had the Majoris lined up, but he just happened to come across them and their dog. <clears throat> this is another one where this is probably a, a setup for an attack a month or two down the road or maybe a couple weeks. So the, the, the family did the right thing. They called the police. The police showed up and saw the same consistencies as the others. And as the police showed up, they said, hey, you know what? You guys stay in a freaking hotel this night and the next couple nights, and we're going to watch your house. And they did put police cars in the neighborhood, unmarked ones as well, and they scoped it out. Now, at this time, um, you know, obviously, Joseph James D'Angelo is a cop. Maybe he's asking questions. Maybe it's coming over the radio, even though he's in a different department, that they're trying this because they have a good lead on this or whatever. You know, the point of the matter is, I'm pretty sure that he caught wind of this and caught wind of the stakeout and knew to stay away uh, because the cops stayed there and the rapist never showed up. So that's not a coincidence to me. He had inside information. So the next attack took place on March 20th, 1979. So this is, you know, a few months later. You know, again, he takes time off. We're back in Rancho Cardova. A single mom was attacked and, and as she resisted, was clubbed into submission. And blindfolding her as she was dazed and confused, he uh, went through the house after tying her up, calling her bitch several times, just using that derogatory thing at her. He ransacked the house, took $3,000 worth of jewelry, and then left. Again, a second time, it's taken a lot of cash. She was lucky, though. She was not sexually assaulted. At least she was not violated that way. He it was a, a money grab. Um, but Detective Larry Crompton, who worked with Shelby and Daly, was the only one who linked this series to the rapes. Crompton would come up in the next episode, as we'll get into it, because of his determination and his gut feelings that proved to be true. So he did push this one, and he felt that there was so many similar characteristics that this was another attack, not just a random attack. This was another attack by the East Area Rapist. So the next attack takes place in April 4th, Fremont, California, 10 p.m. A mother... It, it, people wake up to a mother effer, wake up, and, and his, he had a gun to the woman. He tied up the man, or had her tie up the man, then he tied her up. Then he retied the man super tight. Same things happened. The assault started after rummaging through the house. The difference in this one is that he, as she was tied up, he fondled her. And he raped her. But he squeezed her breast so hard till she screamed. So a sadistic type of move on his part. You know, he's not just fondling the breast to fondle him. You know, he rarely did that in these cases. He kind of stayed away from the breast. But with this woman, 
whether they were big or whatever size that he was into, he did it like say there was another case where he squeezed the finger so tight it bled. He was just he was just squeezing and he was trying to do the same thing I think with the breast, and then finally she screamed, um, and then he let go for whatever reason. Could have kept going, but thankfully he didn't. Uh, the same description was given, and the police were again at a loss. So again, they're trying to investigate. They're not getting anywhere. And we're going through these cases in rapid succession only because, you know, we got to get to the end and we're almost there. But I just want to give you a feel of what was happening at the time. So June 2nd, Walnut Creek, 1979, a 17-year-old girl was babysitting a child and she felt someone right behind her as she was in the kitchen preparing the bottle of milk for the kid. She was right. She turned around. The rapist was looking dead in her eyes. And she's and the rapist put a knife to her throat. First, he had it over his head and then brought it down, almost like in a striking situation to kind of get her to freeze. Put it by her neck and said, "All I want is your money." And uh, with a knife to her back, then after he twisted her around, he ushered her into the room where she began to get tied up. Now she was pleading not to hurt the child or herself. Um, when he tried to rape her, he couldn't, and uh, he bit her nipple and her breast so hard that he finally got erect and he raped her this was the fourth time in a row at this point when police came and after he left because he raped her once and left and when she was able to call the police and whatnot the detectives at this point were thinking dang this is the fourth time in a row he's had a hard time staying erect and getting hard in any nature and the the thing that they noted was that inflicting the pain or threatening with a gun was keeping him erect meaning the detectives had a theory of he was losing them just the regular mojo of the whole tying up process that he has to push it another notch like whatever is working is not working good enough for him to get sexually gratified so it was beginning to scare cops because they're obviously understanding the fact that this dude is gonna go crazy at some point and go off the deep end um so Larry Crompton again had been telling everybody and he just kept reiterating that the rapist, you know, we got to stop this guy before he kills. You know, he's going to kill. And he's looking for a reason to kill. You know, there's been a few close calls, but it's going to happen at some point. So as he's telling the media and he's trying to like, or, or just telling the police, like, we need to get catch this guy, you know, try to develop new, new ways of trying to catch this guy. Um... You know, because they didn't know about the majority's double murder, all this stuff. You know, the Visalia murders. So, the next attack um, occurred uh, June 11th, 1979 in Danville, California. A woman awoke up to the same flashlight and the gun pointed and the threats and the demands of money. The routine continued. While teasing the husband about his wife, he went to her and had uh, her perform sexual acts on him. Then he raped her and left. When cops came out, the, uh, they found footprints matching the shoe's description of the, the uh, other cases and, you know, the rapes. And the dogs acted the same way. <clears throat> the intruder came through the couple's three-year-old son's window. Fortunately, did not uh, attack or tie up the three-year-old. On June 25, 1979, in Walnut Creek, a family of a 16-year-old girl and a 13-year-old girl, or actually a husband, he was a, a single father, sorry, Single father um, of a 16-year-old and 13-year-old were fast asleep. Now picture this. You're fast asleep. You're, I'm assuming this guy was in his 40s because I don't really have an age of the, the father. Sleeping in his queen-size bed or what have you, knocked out. 
and then your 13 year old doesn't just knock on your door doesn't just like come in and say daddy i'm scared of the boogeyman or i'm scared that you know i heard some noises those things had already passed she saw the boogeyman she felt the boogeyman she endured crap and you're a father sleeping in the bed and the first things you hear half asleep is your daughter jump on the bed waking you up and you know how you always wake up what what and then she tells you i've been raped your 13 year old daughter has to tell you i've been raped that's hard to stomach she had been tied up placed on her stomach a knife to her neck he climaxed on her chest and he raped the poor girl he threatened not to move or for her not to move until he left the house and was down the street she complied she actually waited an additional 15 minutes the dogs came and followed the scent almost a mile away the dogs reacted the same way it was the same perpetrator July 5th Danville this is where things changed as hard as that one was to swallow that case this one was a little different and this one will frustrate you a couple who were also following the case as most were were very vigilant and they had come up with a design strategy to where if the East Area rapist had compromised the house and got in and tried to do something to them and do all the MOs that they were hearing on either via uh, news or newspaper reading that they had an escape plan. And um, this escape plan, you know, really worked if you think about it. And um, coming off the frustration of the 13-year-old now being viewed all over the place, um, they, they knew what to do. Now... The thing was, the rapist made it to their house. And uh, it's not clear if they had gotten the normal hang-up calls or anything else like that. But what is clear is that, or prior, what is clear is that the husband was not your normal husband. And, um, you know, the woman was slight in stature. She was the normal girl or woman that uh, he goes after. Now, whether he did not scope out the husband in his stocking or whether he just went for it because he saw her, Either way, when he, when Joseph James D'Angelo, the East Area Rapist at the time, made his way through the house, he encountered a 6'4", 245-pound man who wasn't going to have any of it. The rapist shined the flashlight on him. And before he was going through his routine of, you know, I need money for this and blah, 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 and his little clenched teeth, anger, you know, face and mask and all that stuff, the guy jumped out. Like, you know, he wasn't ex- like he wasn't expecting him to be like fully awake. For some reason, the adrenaline kicked in. That guy jumped out of bed before he could even get his gun cocked. He jumped out of the, of the bed yelling as he's charging the East Area Rapist saying, Who the F are you? And why the F are you in my house? And the rapist kind of like froze. And uh, the wife got out of bed called the police station and just said, we're getting raped at this address, blah, 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 and hung up the phone. The man, her husband, 
grabbed the, the rapist, knocked the gun out of his hand, and the gun fell about a good five feet away uh, from from the uh, perpetrator and the man. And he was holding him against the wall to where, he, even though he was kind of in the doorway, he kind of got pushed up against the wall to where the wife could go right behind the perpetrator and the husband and out the front door and start to try to get a hold of neighbors and just to get out of sight and out of harm's way. Um, during this struggle, however, the man was in total control and knocked the mask off the East area rapist. And as they're struggling and they're continuing struggling to struggle, the thing, the thing that's so frustrating is at the last moment, the guy just lets him go. I mean, you think if you have the guy You've got maybe you know he, he likely has a couple other weapons on him, but he he's not in control. He's he's got he's got him by the arms. He's holding him. He probably has a knife on him and a club like he usually does. But the the most dangerous weapon is gone. It's you know it's feet away from from the fight. It got knocked out of his hands. You've got the upper hand. You're holding this guy. If anything, put an MMA move on him or something. Hold him until the cops come. And again, this will be another opportunity where lives could have been saved because of this. And several, and unfortunately, um, the man just let him go, and actually went out the window. He didn't go through the front. So as the East Area Rapist is trying to get his, you know, his thoughts together as he's let go, you know, pushed on the ground, he gets up, tries to get the gun. The guy's already out the window, so he has to bell, and that one's over with. So that attack ended not the way that people thought, and the cops were a little frustrated by that too. Um, so this last attack came seven days um, actually after Joseph James D'Angelo had been arrested. Yes, he was arrested. Seven days prior to this last attack, he was arrested. And can you guess for what? He was arrested for shoplifting a hammer and dog repellent. Now, if you think about it, it makes sense. Now, he was arrested and the police officers from his own agency came down when they found out that he was from Auburn Police Department. He got arrested in Rancho Cordova, but the Auburn police came down because he was one of theirs and he was now a disgraced police officer. Uh, He put up a fight. The loss prevention team or whoever, you know, tied him up, had him in the the room with the, uh, you know, where the boss sits or whatever, the manager of the store. And uh, he wouldn't give a statement. And, uh, the, you know, obviously, uh, the, the police threatened charges, the place, uh, hardware store threatened charges. But at that time, the police had a union, a pretty strong union. And, and if you fought it, it would cost the state more money, the police department more money. And so they came up with a plea deal with his lawyer that, you know, he would accept the charges. There wouldn't be a felony and that he would just accept the firing, too, by the Auburn Police Department as being disgraced. And he probably wouldn't be a police officer the rest of his life. Not to be trusted. He was, you know, he his whole reputation ruined. He made the newspaper as far as being a disgraced police officer. So with all that being said, he was kind of, he was given a slap on the wrist. He did have to pay a fine, but he was not given any jail time. And it would be his only blemish on his on his name until years later. Um, so he took the plea deal and it went away. And, uh, you know, as we end this episode, however, Joseph then moves to central California a month later, 
his you know afterwards he moved to central california for a bit a month later his chief of police uh, who he was mad at that fired him was sleeping along with his family uh his seven-year-old son woke up to a man hanging upside down from the eve sort of like spider-man with a flashlight pulled to his pointed at his face not a gun but just a flashlight the boy ran up out of his room as fast as he could went to his father and told him what he saw his father pulled out the shotgun went outside looked around didn't see anybody but did find finger of uh, footprints as the police came they checked out the abnormal abnormal seas seeing that he had jumped from one roof to the other from the the um, garage over to the house um and for some reason you know like on the other episode that we had recorded that had the bad sound Matt did say at this point, well, how come they didn't figure it was Joseph James D'Angelo? That's who I would have figured because he's a disgraced cop. He's pissed off. Didn't like the ruling, whatever. Of course he's going to come after his employer, his supervisor. But they, again, the police didn't link this one together. And, and whether they investigated him or not, from what I've seen, Joseph was never a suspect in this case as well. So... Um, the shoe prints were the same, though, as a Golden State Killer or as the uh, East Area Rapist at the time. So that's what it was attributed to, and maybe that's why they didn't go after um, Joseph in that regard as being a former cop. And we'll leave it right there, and we'll leave it at the uh, end of 79, um, or closing in on the end of 1979, where you know Joseph James D'Angelo is fired a disgraced cop you know he he then seven days later attacks that man who's 245 pounds so if you if you look at the way things are going he's had four straight times of not being able to keep it up he's had some failed opportunities to finish the job because of or being interrupted and then the, the guy interrupted him on this last attack too so you're starting to see that he's either gotten sloppy or the things that he was doing that he was so trusting in aren't working so now that he's going to move into a new area the east area rapist stuff will well we'll stop for a second or for for a little while and and there'll, there'll be a lifting of you know maybe this guy got arrested on other charges and we just don't know who we have the the lifting of the fear in those communities kind of the the easing up kind of like they feel a little bit better is what i'm trying to say but you will see Central California now will be the target of this man's um, attacks. And he'll change his persona and he will turn into something else and be labeled something else by the media and the police department because they won't leak these two people together they, or they think it's two people. They don't, they're not going to think it's just one. Now, at this very same time, uh, real quick as I end this episode, um, there is... A overwhelming feeling that it's another serial killer because you had at this time period you have all these um, killings going up and down you know you had the i5 killer at this time or close to it you had um, also um, you've had a uh, Ted Bundy working working the neighborhoods up there I mean you have all kinds of serial killers that if you look up in California or the West Coast history there's a ton so he's in the same time period that you'll hear of another one that he'll be linked to or not linked to, but uh, be kind of named because of, if that makes any sense. So you've been listening to Grinding True Crime uh, or Grind True Crimes. Uh, look us up. Uh, we're, if you like what you hear, please send us an email to grindingtruecrime at yahoo.com. 
uh, please um, like and subscribe on Facebook or Instagram. We're growing this podcast as best as we can. And it's with your help. That would make a lot of, uh, of us happy here because we work really hard in this thing, even though it's a, you know, sometimes we have sound issues. That's why we had to re-record this one. Um, but uh, we're doing our best and we're getting the hang of it. We're new at this. So please be patient. We love you guys. And thank you for the support. And this has been another episode of Grinding True Crime with your host, Todd Fox, Maddie Matt, and uh, Gabby Gab will be back for the next episode. Thank you very much. Peace.